I remain optimistic that we as Americans can solve these environmental issues before us. Everything sounds so dire when you listen to the potential impacts in society, and the impacts we're already seeing. But Americans and people in general have long been very good problem solvers. This is a major problem, and we need to deal with it. I think we can. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Anyone remember the 70s and the hole in the ozone layer? Anyone remember how we solved that problem? Yep, it was science, and that's one of our topics on today's episode of Got Science. And stick around after the interview for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. Although they may seem like distant memories, many times in our recent past, we've come together in this country around environmental challenges. Through a combination of robust science, strong, informed advocacy, and smart policy, we've been able to address these challenges and implement solutions that protect ourselves and the planet from further harm. Remember acid rain, burning rivers? These aren't things in the United States anymore, thanks to science and our collective action. And remember the hole in the ozone layer? That's another success story made possible in part by our guest today, atmospheric physicist Don Wibbles. Dr. Wibbles was among the scientists who worked to determine the cause and policy solutions of the damage to our stratospheric ozone. His expertise and advocacy on the subject have led to the gradual recovery of the ozone layer, which is undeniably awesome. Another awesome thing about Dr. Wibbles is that he's still a passionate believer in our power to use science to tackle our most urgent crises, namely climate change. Dr. Wibbles is the Harry E. Preble Endowed Professor in Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He served as Assistant Director of the Federal Office of Science and Technology Policy for two years under President Obama. He's a fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, the American Geophysical Union, and the American Meteorological Society. He's been lead author on reports for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And he joined us on the podcast to talk about fixing the ozone layer, effective science communication, and that time he pulled an all-nighter to rewrite a presidential speech for Barack Obama. Our correspondent, Matt Hyde, sat down with Dr. Wibbles. Matt, over to you. Thanks, Colleen. And thank you, Dr. Wibbles. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the Got Science podcast. Oh, I'm happy to. So you were instrumental in discovering the hole in the ozone layer. Can you tell me a little bit about that work? Well, I started out my career studying stratospheric ozone. Um, First got started in 1970, studying the potential effects of then-proposed supersonic transport aircraft on the ozone layer and and with colleagues at NOAA, developed one of the very first models with chemistry and physics to to study the impacts of that. In 1974, Melina and Rowland then discovered that chlorofluorocarbons could affect ozone. And soon after that, I was at Lawrence Livermore Natural Lab by that point, and I started doing some papers with them. Then, uh, around the early 1980s, the uh, British Antarctic Survey discovered that there appeared to be a decrease occurring during the springtime in Antarctica. 
And many of us were speculating as to, you know, what might be causing this. And Sherry had suggested that, uh, Sherry Rowland, suggested that there were some reactions they had been looking at the laboratory that appeared only to work on surfaces, but nonetheless, we should try to take a look at those in our model that we had at Livermore. And I, uh, I and one of my colleagues looked at those. We found that if they were gas phase, that they maybe could explain some of the ozone hole, but maybe not sufficiently. But we didn't have a clear connection to particles that would explain these reactions occurring on surfaces. We were at American Geophysical Union meeting that December and had lunch with Susan Solomon. And uh, Susan got very interested in what we were looking at, and she said, well, could she look at it as well? And we said, sure. And a few weeks later, she was writing the first draft of our paper on Christmas Day, actually. We uh, had concluded that maybe these heterogeneous reactions on polar stratospheric clouds, which were kind of unknown up almost to that point, that could be the cause of, of this stratospheric ozone hole. And then that was substantiated by further observations. Actually, Susan led one group going to Antarctica, and then there were several other uh, series of observations that kind of backed up what we were concluding. Uh, Mario Molina then kind of hammered it home by finding that the chlorine dimer reactions could further destroy ozone connected with those heterogeneous reactions. So it just kind of all fell together uh, through interactions with others in the science community. And once the science was confirmed what was causing the hole in the ozone layer, what did you do? Were you involved in the policy work that eventually banned CFCs, or was your work done at that point? Oh, no. Well, at the same time, I had been looking at metrics for potential effects on ozone from different chemicals, and I developed a concept called ozone depletion potentials. So that became a vital part of the uh, Mantra Protocol and the Clean Air Act, U.S. Clean Air Act. So those contributed to the policy uh, development. So I was trying to look at the questions of how one kind of connects science with policymaking. Because I quickly found, as I would talk to uh, the agencies about policy, the policy side was always led by lawyers who really didn't understand the science. So how could I kind of simplify the science to help with the policymaking? And so that's, that was one of the concepts I, I came up with. Uh, later on for IPCC, I helped in development of a similar concept called global warming potentials, which is now part of the Paris Agreement. Can you talk a little bit more when you talk about simplifying the science communication or translating some of the work that you're doing in a way that's helpful and makes sense for policymakers? Well, it's always a key aspect as a scientist is how do we translate the science in a way or communicate it? to people so that they can understand the complexity of what we're talking about, but yet grasp why that's important to them. And so one of the things I've always worried about was that whole question of communication. Some of my students actually came to me specifically because I was worried about communication. Catherine Hale, who has since become very well known as a communicator, came to me as one of my first graduate students at Illinois because she was concerned about that aspect. And and knew that I was someone that was worried about that. And can you tell me a little bit about what the current state of the ozone is after all of these efforts? Well, just in the last few years, uh, we have some indication that the uh, stratospheric ozone is beginning to recover very, very slowly. 
it took longer than I expected it might be, actually, before we start really seeing real signs of the recovery. But, you know, it's hard to get, given natural variability, it's hard to get clear signs of a turnaround in ozone. But now we, we appear to be there. Uh, there's been several independent studies now suggesting that. Uh, so gradually over the next four or five decades, the ozone layer should recover, with, particularly with the focus being on what's happening in Antarctica, because that's where the biggest changes are, to, to gradually return to the state it was back in the 1980s. It never will quite return there because, meanwhile, we've been increasing the amount of carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide and methane in the atmosphere, and that's going to impact the ozone layer as well. But the total ozone, uh, in terms of the amount of ultraviolet, may, may be comparable by then to what we had back at that time period. So if we could shift gears a little bit and talk about your time and work at the White House, and curious to hear more about your role there and your experiences working sure. there. Well, I had been one of the leaders in the 2013 IPCC assessment. I, I led Chapter 1 for that. And then in 2014, I was one of the leaders in the U.S. National Climate Assessment. And I served a similar role in the 2009 National Climate Assessment. I expect those things prompted uh, John Holdren to call me one day in, uh, I think it was in March of 2015, I suddenly got this phone call, and John asked me if I could come to the White House. The funny thing is, I think I had always kind of avoided D.C. because it's got all these political creatures there. And I'm not that political. I'm, I'm more in science. But nonetheless, I felt that that was service to my country, and I needed to do that. So I agreed to go to D.C. for two years. And so I, I, I went in June of uh, 2015, and now I returned back to Illinois, actually, to the university in June of 2017. I was at the Office of Science Technology Policy as assistant director uh, responsible for climate science, which basically means I was the primary person that the president would call upon relating to any questions relating to climate science. And I passed many memos up forward through to John well, I said John's name on him rather than mine. But nonetheless, when I did meet President Obama, he acknowledged that he knew about my memos. <laughs> and, uh, he was very interested in science. And so by our keeping him up on the, what was happening, I think it was really helpful to the country as it was looking at what we should be doing with both the Paris Agreement and in developing our own climate action plans back in that time period. Were there any memorable moments or anecdotes from your time there that jumped to mind when you yeah, look back at that period? several smiles come to mind there because the first thing, uh, that first August particularly, the president was, and John and several other people from the White House were going to Alaska for a meeting with the ministers from all the different countries that have some connections to research in the Arctic. Um, and this is being held in Anchorage. I got home uh, late Friday afternoon, early evening, from the old executive building where my office was next to the White House. And within half an hour, I get a, a ding that an email had arrived from the White House that I needed to look at. And it was a president's writer, speech writer, sending out the speech for the talk that he was going to give on Monday to the ministerial. And they needed my response by 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning. So I, about 6.30 p.m. or so, I, I started reading it. I realized quickly that the science was just not properly done at all. 
and so I started rewriting. I finished at 6 a.m. I haven't pulled an all-nighter for many years, probably since I was a student, but nonetheless I did that night, and there were several since then actually as well. But I essentially rewrote the talk, all of it relating to the science. There were other parts of the talk that you know, weren't pure science, and I had very little impact on those. But most of the talk was about the science, and it was President Obama's really first coming out about the details of the science and why this was concerned to humanity. And so I, th I didn't think too much about it because I thought between Saturday morning and Monday morning, uh, the president's writers would totally rewrite it again, and you know I probably wouldn't recognize it, but hopefully the science would be okay. On Monday, I went to the office and got to hear the president speaking, and I was rather shocked that even the intonation that the president used was like I had written it, you know, like because I wrote it the way I talk. And I was rather shocked to find that he was giving my talk, at least about the parts about the science. And that was, uh, that was quite exhilarating. In your time at the White House and you work in the IPCC, a national climate assessment, you know, I'm curious what are some of the significant changes you've seen over the past decade with regard to climate change, both the science and this political environment? Well, I think our understanding has uh, greatly improved of climate change over the last decade, and you know, no question of that. I mean, the observations uh, and understanding of those observations and even annual trends in what's happening in the weather systems and, and how that relates across the entire Earth system, not just the atmosphere, but also the relationship between the atmosphere and the oceans and the biosphere uh, is so much better understood than it was a decade ago. The net effect is, I, th I think a lot of more people do get that this is a very important issue. And I think most Americans really understand that this is one of our most important issues. At least some of the polls uh, done by Yale University and others uh, suggest that. And so I think the time has been ripe for us to really be taking strong policy actions. I was happy that while I was there, President Obama was, was aiming at doing that, was trying to do that. The Paris Agreement is still going forward towards putting us on the right pathway. It's not sufficient to do what we need to do over the coming decades, but, but it's certainly on the right pathway. And I think society itself is kind of getting it. You know, we're already seeing a transition in energy and transportation systems that I don't think would have happened so easily without the push from the, acknowledging the fact that the, the climate is changing and we need to be concerned about that as human beings. And when you look forward to the next 10 years or the decade ahead of us in climate science, are there any areas that you're particularly excited about or you feel are going to be groundbreaking in some way, similar to what we've seen in the past decade? I think we've already seen very significant increased understanding of extreme events, particularly. We talk about that in the fourth national climate assessment, which uh, I just led the volume one for on the, the science of climate change. That, I think, will really hammer that home during the next decade. And, and that's so important to humanity because it isn't the small change in temperature that really matters too much. It's really what impacts does it have on our lives and the resulting changes in extremes, the increases in sea level. Those are the things that really impact us. So getting better handle on those things, I think, is, is uh, really exciting as a scientist. My concern is, is what we're learning is, on many of them is that it may be even scarier than we had thought previously. 
for example, if the West Antarctic ice sheet, some studies suggested that that might go much faster than we had thought originally. And if that's the case, then by the end of the century, we, we could be seeing a much larger sea level rise than our current estimates of one to four feet. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. And now back to our interview. To shift gears a little bit again and sort of get back to some of the science communication questions. So I understand you, you grew up on a farm, be, became a scientist, and have gone back to farming communities to talk to farmers about global warming in yes. particular. Uh, curious, how do you bridge the gap between your scientific knowledge and the farmer's real-world experience on the ground, their sort of on-the-ground observations, sort of how do you yeah. effectively communicate with those audiences? Yeah, I am the son of a farmer. You know, it's funny, after all these years of education, it's kind of hard for me to go back to that community and and talk to them because I'm so caught up in all the the words we use for science, the scientific language, that it's hard for me to talk to them in the same way that I probably would have many years ago. But nonetheless, I generally find now that farmers are getting it. They're seeing changes, particularly in extremes. You know, in Illinois, you know, I don't have to talk too much about the changes in the springtime, more rain coming as larger events, about the fact that they're having more trouble getting the crops in the field because of that. Uh, they're drying in late summer because of the increased temperature leading more evaporation and all the other th- aspects of what we're really seeing in terms of climate change in the Midwest. Farmers are very sensitive to that. So uh, they're really beginning to catch on. And even though they may have political viewpoints that, and many farmers tending to be conservative, that you know, kind of tell them, well, you shouldn't believe in this thing, climate change, uh, they're kind of getting that climate's changing anyway. So the next step is then explaining to them that the only explanation we have for that change is because of human activities. I'm still working on that with the farming community. And when you talk about translating some of the scientific terms that you're so used to using in the field and with your peers and colleagues. Do you have any advice or recommendations for scientists doing similar things? If you had to share a single tip or recommendation for more effectively communicating science to non-scientific audiences, what that might be? I I think it really comes down to thinking about the science in a way you would tell your parents or your grandparents. Uh, Try to put outcome of the science in the simpler language. You don't, those people don't need all the details of what we do and why we do it. They need to hear what the results mean and what it means to them and why it's important to them. You know, as a scientist, I'm, uh, I recognize the importance of these issues. I know how it's important it's going to be to our children, our grandchildren. And I'm always striving, can I figure out some way of getting that message across? I'm not as good at it as someone like Catherine, but I work at it almost daily (laughs) to try to improve that. And in the same vein, are there sort of common mistakes you see science communicators make that you encourage people to address, or if there were one thing you could change about... I I think sometimes we get too caught up in the details and trying to uh, discuss things that really excite us about the uncertainties and resolving uncertainties. Uh, to the common person, uncertainties suggest you don't know anything. So how do we get around that? And 
So you need to talk about what we know and what, what this means to people and why that's important. When it comes down to policymakers and needing to know a lot more of that detail about an uncertainty, then, then you can discuss it with I was hoping to hear a little bit about the urban sustainability uh, work you're doing. Sure, but, sure. but first, can you give our listeners a definition of what urban sustainability is? So if we look at urban environments, and I, I have a kind of a broad picture of urban because to me, even a city the size of Champaign and Urbana, which are twin cities, is really an urban environment, even though it's sitting amongst all the cornfields of central Illinois. Cornfields and soybean fields, I've got to be careful. By mid-century, 70% of the world is going to be urban. In the U.S., it's already kind of at that level, and it's probably going to be a whole lot higher by then. And so we need to be thinking about the cities of the future and the many different stresses that they are dealing with. How do we ensure that cities are prepared for that, those changes that are occurring in those stresses? Uh, how do they prepare for climate change being one of them, but there's many other stresses they face as well, growing populations in many cases, et cetera. So being sustainable to me means being, being prepared for that, being resilient, being ready to deal with the optimal capability of the city of the future. So when I came back to the university in June, um, I immediately got a phone call that President uh, Colleen, Tim Colleen, who is, is our university president, uh, himself uh, a environmental scientist, he then asked me to be a, a presidential fellow with the idea that I would work on new initiatives relating to urban sustainability. There's already been for a long time concerns about the, the university interacting with the city of Chicago, but also lots of connections with other cities, and maybe we needed to have more of a focus in that direction. In 2008, I had led a analysis of the effects of climate change on Chicago, called the Chicago Climate Action Plan, which in turn has had an impact on making the city much more resilient to things like heat waves and, and large rainfalls, et cetera. So President Clean was well aware of that. So in asking me to do this, I needed to broaden my horizons and think more generally about all of the, uh, the issues cities are facing. And I immediately thought that one of the things we should be doing is how could we form a new research center at the university, not just at our campus, but all three University of Illinois campuses, and perhaps combine the, those capabilities with partners that we got from other major institutions that uh, are still to be defined, to have a, a new center that would become the go-to place for cities to really look at their sustainability issues, to help them be ready for those coming decades. So I'm still in the process of designing what that might look like. I'm working with the faculty in all three campuses right now towards defining what this center might be. I can't say it's well-defined yet. And, of course, we're, one of the big things we're going to be doing is figuring out how we're going to get this thing funded, probably going with foundations or large companies to, to help support it. But I, I think there's a lot of potential there. I think there's still a lot of need. There are various other universities working on various aspects of urban sustainability. I'm looking at this as being much more comprehensive, being you know, not just Illinois, but nationally and internationally. And if we can do this right, then I think it could be a great resource both for our nation and, and, and for the world. And given the number of challenges that cities face, the stressors, as you put it, are you hopeful, optimistic for the way cities will evolve over the coming century? 
I think we're already seeing a lot of positive things out of cities. Cities like Chicago and Portland, Seattle, a few others, are really already thinking about these issues. There's always limitations because of resources and many other aspects, but just by the fact that they're thinking about them and putting it on their plate of things that they need to be concerned about. That's why I'm really interested in this, because I think the cities are ready for it, and I think we have capabilities that they could use. So we're, you know, I'm already beginning to look not only at Chicago, but also some other cities around the world uh, towards you know, how we can help with them and be there as a resource for them. So last question uh, for you. Now, given all of the challenges we face for climate change and some of the other issues and challenges facing cities, what gives you hope personally as you look forward in the years ahead? I remain optimistic that we as Americans can solve these environmental issues before us. Um, I got asked at the third national climate assessment, we had a press conference at the White House and I got asked by one of the reporters, you know, how can I be optimistic about this? Because everything sounds so dire when you listen to the potential impacts in society. And the impacts we're already seeing have had over a trillion dollar impact on the U.S. economy. Most people don't recognize that. But Americans and people in general have long been very good problem solvers. This is a major problem and we need to deal with it. I think we can. And it's not going to be perfect. We're going to have to adapt to a certain amount of climate change. But I think we can mitigate and slow it down enough that we can prevent the largest impacts from occurring. Um, you know, it still remains to be seen, but that's my big concern. And, you know, most of those impacts are going to happen beyond my lifetime, but I'm concerned about, as I said before, our children and our grandchildren and, and trying to leave the right kind of legacy for them. Thank you, Dr. Wibbles. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's wonderful being able to do this process. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going back to June 14, 1972, when the Environmental Protection Agency established an end to the continued domestic use of the insecticide DDT. The EPA's ban came out a decade after the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which brought the impacts of DDT on wildlife and the potential human health risks to the public spotlight. However, scientists had been sounding the alarm about the dangers of DDT as early as the mid-1940s. Thankfully, the EPA ultimately listened to the mounting scientific evidence that linked DDT to the devastation of bird and wildlife populations. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said of the current EPA and its administrator, Scott Pruitt. Last March, despite years of scientific study and deliberation indicating that the pesticide chlorpyrifos poses a clear risk to children, farm workers, and users of rural drinking water, EPA Administrator Pruitt announced that his agency would decline to ban it. This was a 180-degree turn from the science-based conclusion reached just a few months before by the EPA Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention, which found that chlorpyrifos has harmful effects on children's brain development. What changed? It wasn't the science. The EPA itself, along with independent scientists, had already demonstrated the gravity of the pesticide's impacts on children. Some clues about the reason for this about-face can be found in the circumstantial evidence of the weeks and months leading up to the decision. For instance, Dow Chemical, the maker of chlorpyrifos, gave $1 million to fund President Trump's inaugural activities, and its chairman and CEO was a key advisor to the Trump administration. 
That's on top of the $13.6 million Dow spent on lobbying in 2016, and more than $5.2 million in the first quarter of 2017 leading up to the decision. And EPA Administrator Pruitt met with the CEO of Dow Chemical before making his decision to allow continued use of chlorpyrifos across the U.S. Now, chemical companies like Dow opposed the DDT ban in the 70s, but Nixon's EPA made a decision based on science, not politics. Unfortunately, our current EPA has decided to put the agenda of a corporation over the lives and well-being of Americans, an egregious failure of our government to use strong, independent science to protect public health and safety. Thanks, Katie. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Don Wibbles. Our correspondent is Matt Hyde. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you like what you heard, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org for more episodes. Thanks, and see you next time.